Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Before I do much of an introduction, I just want to read it this morning. I want to read the passage we'll be studying. So I'll give you a moment to turn there. And then we'll read in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 8. Last week we covered chapter 5 in its entirety. Chapter 6 will break up a little bit into three parts, but we'll look at the first part today. So 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. 1 Corinthians is helping us learn to see all of life through the lens of the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Over Christmas break, our family had a chance to go skiing. Um, Not here, because we have no snow here, right? But up in Montana. And so we're getting ready to go up on the slopes, put on my goggles. And like a lot of ski goggles, they're kind of tinted yellow. And everything kind of looked different after I put those on. The snow had a different look to it, shadows. Everything kind of looked differently. In the same way, what 1 Corinthians is helping us do is learn to look at all of life through the lens of the gospel. It's not a deeply doctrinal book about the gospel in the same ways that like Romans or Ephesians would be. But it's intensely practical. It's speaking to newer believers in in a culture that was very anti-Christian or non-Christian that had values very different from the believing community. And so in that way, it's not unlike what we're increasingly moving towards in our own country, where where in the past there were perhaps a general moral attitude that was more in line with biblical values, even if people weren't Christians. That's it's kind of moving away from that. And so Christians are becoming more of a, of a distinct kind of moral mentality. And believers will need to learn how to interact in that context. How to look at all of life through the gospel. Here's how that shows up in 1 Corinthians. He talked about unity in the first four chapters, but it was unity because we're united in Christ through the gospel. Or in chapter 5, last week, he talked about the need to deal with sin, significant, outward, unrepentant sin within the body. But, but as he did that, he didn't say just because you need to bring the hammer down or something. He said, because you, as believers, have been forgiven, you've been cleansed by sin, by, from, from sin by Christ, therefore, it should change how you live. Chapter 6 that we just read here is on something that may seem kind of surprising to you. The need not to bring lawsuits 
before an unbelieving world, but resolve things internally. And yet if we were to keep reading in chapter 6, he gives the reason, a reason, a supporting reason for that in verse 11. It's a unit that continues on. It's beyond what we'll look at today. But you can look there in your passages or just look up here. After giving this argument for why believers should not take each other to court, he reminds them of the gospel. He says, such were some of you, this list of things that precedes this, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He says, you've been washed. The, the filth of sin has been cleansed. You've been sanctified. The, the grip of sin has been released. You've been justified. The, the guilt of sin has been replaced with Christ's righteousness. Because all of that is true of you as a believing community, here's how it should change the way you deal with conflicts and disputes with one another. So this isn't a passage then about just you know, keeping our dirty laundry hidden from an unbelieving world and not letting them see kind of what's going on inside the doors. No, it's you've been transformed by Christ, therefore live like it. And there's a specific way to do that. And this specific application, the specific way to do it here is by taking disputes and conflicts and rather than letting them spill out into court, trying to resolve them internally with one another. Not only does that make biblical sense here, it makes practical sense even with our court system. Often been observed that our country is increasingly litigious. Lots of lawsuits, lawsuits proliferating, and and many, even within the law profession, have have pointed out the the danger of that, the harm of that. Here's here's one, and this is former Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger. He says one reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. Remedies for personal wrongs that once were considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of the church, the family, and neighborhood unity. This is decades ago, and he's saying as churches have declined, as well as families and neighborhood unity, people aren't able to resolve things internally, so they turn to the courts, turn to the courts, turn to the courts. There are those that argue the opposite. I, I did some Google searches this, this week, um, the, the height of research I know, going to Google. And, and as I was looking, I, I found many arguing that there are, are not too many lawsuits, that it's okay, there's, it's actually good, perhaps we should sue more. All of those were from lawyers, just to tell you. Every, every one of those sites that I found arguing that, uh, both anecdotally and what we you know, tend to see is that by and large we're, we're turning to the courts too often. And here it's encouraging believers to take a different approach. The flow of this argument uses a series of questions. In fact, nine questions in these eight verses. But we're going we're gonna to break them down into a command, series of reasons, and then a conclusion. And the command is this. Christians should not take their brothers and sisters to court. Christians should not take their brothers and sisters in Christ to court. It's phrased like a question, but it's essentially a command. But what type of case is in mind here? What, 
What court case is this referring to? It's described as a dispute. It's described as something in which we might be defrauded. It's essentially what we would call civil disputes. So within the court system, there's civil and criminal law. Civil law has to do with things like financial disputes, contract disputes, interpersonal things, whereas criminal law has to do with more like crimes that are committed that are being punished by the judicial system. This is primarily civil litigation that's in mind. It's not something where a crime has been committed, where you know, an abuse of a minor or domestic violence or something like that, but disputes and complaints of, of this more business type and financial type often. One commentary describes it this way. In general, criminal law is for punishing people who commit crimes that harm society, while civil law is for resolving private disputes about money and possessions. What Paul condemns throughout this passage is one believer's taking another to civil court. We need to do a bit of a kind of a digression here, because if we don't, we're in danger of misapplying this, I think, in a way that could actually be dangerous. And, and so it's going to be a little bit of a, of a tangent here, but I hope you'll see why as we go through it. There are criminal matters in which it is absolutely appropriate to take it outside the walls of the church, to involve the state and local government, to involve the government powers, uh, because there are responsibilities given to them for punishing crime. And when we fail to understand that, we maybe keep things in-house that, that ought not to be. One, one person from church history that described this well, I think, as a man named Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905, but he also pastored several churches. He founded a denomination. He founded a university, started a newspaper. He's the kind of guy that you read his life story and you think, what am I doing with my life, right? <laughs> I mean, so many different things he had his hands in, and and he argued for a concept known as sphere sovereignty. What he meant by that, sphere sovereignty, is that there's different spheres of life. The state has a certain sphere that it occupies. The church has a sphere that it occupies. The family. All of this is under the lordship of Christ. But we cannot mix them because when we do, we end up neglecting responsibilities that fall to one or the other. So the church cannot do what the state can do in terms of punishing crime. But the state cannot do what the church must do in terms of shepherding people and spiritual growth. Likewise, the family has distinct responsibilities from both. There are legal matters that fall within the sphere of the state. When a crime has been committed, well, let's, let's use a hypothetical example of a kid in youth group who accuses a, a volunteer youth leader of abuse. This passage is not saying that needs to just stay in-house, keep, keep that secret. No, because that falls within the sphere of the state to punish crime, if a crime's been committed there. So it would be absolutely appropriate for the church to involve local law enforcement officials on that. Now, it also has to do with the sphere of the church. They overlap there, and that the stuff we just read last week in 1 Corinthians 5 about dealing with sin in-house would apply there as well. But that would be a criminal matter that absolutely should bring in state officials. 
That belongs to their sphere. Romans 13 is one of the clearest passages in the New Testament that talks about this role of the state in punishing crime. It says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. It says the governing authorities are placed there by God, even imperfectly, because every government institution is imperfect, because we're all imperfect. Some are far from perfection, yet this is the role that God has placed them in. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. That phrase there, bearing the sword, refers to their role of punishing crime as a deterrent. So the sphere belongs to the state, to the government. It's very much punishing crime. This is talking about what we'd call this civil litigation. There's interpersonal conflict, perhaps over a contract, uh, over a business dealing, over some financial issue. This is no, we should, we should be able to resolve this internally. Perhaps with a mediator, it talks about bringing a, a wise man, a wise person involved, perhaps many that can mediate this. But here are some types of situations this might apply to. This is a list from Ken Sandy, who was a lawyer, and he founded a couple biblical peacemaking organizations. And he gave these as examples for ways that he, scenarios he's seen churches apply this passage to. So the owner of a house accused a builder of doing defective work. An employee claimed that she was improperly fired from her job. The owners of a business could not agree on how to divide its assets. A partner in an oil and gas development venture believed he had been defrauded. A family was fighting over a deceased parent's estate. A family was frequently disturbed by their neighbor's barking dog. There you see kind of the range of issues, right? As big as a assets in an oil business, as small as the neighbor's barking dog. Two ranchers disagreed on road right-of-way. A divorced couple disagreed constantly over child support and visitation. Are some of these situations complex? Yeah. We're going to go through all the nuances of how it might apply in these different complex situations? Absolutely not. But you get a sense that there's a range of things that fall within what we might call civil law that we should look to resolve internally with other believers. He gives some reasons, three reasons here that he gives for this. The first reason is that we should be competent to settle issues internally. And he appeals to two issues of future judgment. Things that aren't given a great deal of detail in scripture, but, but role that believers will play in somehow judging the world in the future. And, and somehow even judging and ruling over angels. Now we don't know exactly what that will look like. Seems to be hinted at in a passage like this and in, say, Revelation 3.21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This idea of us as believers sitting with him on his throne seems to imply some type of leadership with him, ruling with him. Beyond that, we don't know a ton of what that will look like. Likewise, there's future judgment awaiting angels, these fallen angels, if you will, that have disobeyed God. 
and are awaiting judgment, perhaps will play some role in that. He doesn't specify here, but what he does do is say, if we're going to be competent to deal with those things, that's the greater thing. Can't we handle the smaller thing as well? It's an argument from greater to lesser. So that argument is like this. If you can lift 100 pounds, can't you also lift something that weighs 10 pounds? So he's saying, if we're going to be sufficient for those types of things, aren't we sufficient for this much smaller thing dealing with this life? And you can see how there are rich biblical principles that if believers agree on them, we can resolve even some of the most complicated things in life. Just to run through them really quick. We're told to be honest. You know this, running throughout Scripture, Ephesians 4.25 would be one passage. How many disputes, contract issues, business dealings have to do with a lack of honesty? And if believers are brought together and encouraged to, hey, let's be honest here. We can resolve many things. Doing what is just and merciful. Justice does matter to God. And so this is not arguing that, hey, we just set justice aside. No, we pursue justice, but we also pursue mercy. Sometimes a civil issue might be one in which we just need to apply justice and mercy. We need to accept responsibilities for our actions and admit our wrongs. Matthew 7 talks about getting rid of the log in our own eye, confessing our own sin before we deal with somebody else. And so, so if it's a civil issue, even something that seems really complex, part of it might just be an unwillingness to accept responsibility. And a believer needs to be encouraged to do so. We're encouraged, of course, to keep our word. So rather than finding a loophole in a contract that enables us to get out from underneath it because of a technicality, a dispute might just be a believer realizing, you know, I just need to keep my word. I just need to do what I said I would do. We're to be concerned with the interests of others. When it gets to the lawsuit stage, it, it's usually just self-focused. What can I get? How much money can I get for myself for this? Versus as believers, we ought to say, how, how can I be concerned about the interests of the other person here? And to listen carefully to what others say. Hear them out, not just arguing from my own side. I need to overlook minor offenses. Some things might be significant. Significant money involved or ethics. We're not saying to just set that aside, but there might be something minor that can just be overlooked. I need to confront others constructively. I need to be open to forgiveness and reconciliation. Often if something goes to civil court and involves years of painful argumentation and accusations, the bitterness can just build. But if we can learn to resolve things internally, we can maybe, we can maybe step that aside from that or pursue forgiveness. But the word also does talk about making restitutions for damages that have been caused. So perhaps there is a dispute where somebody needs to make it right by paying restitution. Here's the point of kind of running through all of this. The word has a lot to say that if believers are committed to obeying the word, can help us work through conflicts and disputes. But when we set that all aside and we resort to a legal system that may not share those values... There's a lot of harm that can come from that. And that gets us to our second reason. This one's more brief. External judges may not share our same internal values. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. 
So, so, if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? He says you're going to take this to a stranger out in the judicial system that he calls him as, as of no account in the church. That's not a, a, a slam on lawyers, although that is a popular kind of joke commodity, right? That, that's not the point. He's saying if they're not believers, even if they're ethical people from a human standpoint, they're not going to share some of these same values that we just listed off. The judge might not share those same values, Why not try to work through them with a mediator who does, who does share those same values and can encourage you toward a biblical and godly resolution? Known cases, and and perhaps you have as well, and we often see this in family law, disputes about divorce and custody of children that, that cannot be resolved internally, and so they throw it upon the court system, and it just makes a mess of the family. Often the family court system is severely overwhelmed, and, and so the, the proceedings are long. The judge involved, even if he, wants, he or she wants to do what's right, uh, may be so rushed and pressed for time that they're not able to understand the nuances of your situation. And I've known many people that were so disheartened by their experience of going through that casting their very precious issues of family and custody life upon a judge that, that it just had rippling effects for decades afterwards. Be an example of if we can resolve these things internally, um, so much better for all involved. Third reason, public disputes harm the name of Christ in the community. Look at verse 6. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Saying you're taking these disputes and not resolving them internally, but letting them spill out before before unbelievers that are watching, and then forming views of the church and of Christ and of the gospel that you say is precious based on kind of the mess that we're making of these relationships. Again, don't misunderstand this as saying churches just need to hide their dirty laundry. We need to pretend to be better than we are. We need to not let people see our sinful issues. No, that's not it. But it's saying if we can resolve these things, then that is a testimony to the watching world. And on the other hand, if what the world sees is just a bunch of squabbling people that say they love each other but it sure doesn't show that, that tells something to the world. The world watches that. Consider a situation I mentioned last week. President of a large Christian university involved in a scandal that also had some accusations that he made financial decisions that were a conflict of interest that benefited him and his family and his friends. Led to his being fired and then a countersuit where he sued the university. And all of this is just playing out in the newspaper and in the you know, social media and on TV and in ways that people are forming a view of Christians who say, yes, we love each other. Yes, we're committed to honesty and integrity. And then, and then this is the way we're acting. Now, I don't know anything about the inner workings of that board or the people involved. Perhaps that was attempted. But it's an example of the harm that can come when this plays out in the public. 
The Bible doesn't pretend that Christians will never sin. Far from that. But it does give us mechanisms for working through them, working them out. And so the conclusion that Paul draws here is that it's better to be wronged. Verse 7. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you. A, a defeat in what way? It says when you, when you resort to this, when you, when you take it before kind of this, this civil court and you don't try to resolve it internally, it's already a defeat Defeat in a number of different ways. Uh, a defeat in that you know, it shows that the body is not able to resolve these things. Uh, a defeat in, in that the people might suffer spiritually by being involved in this. There are some really complicated legal situations. And, and this isn't to downplay that. This is dealing with something very specific here. Two believers, likely within the same church body, a matter of civil law, not criminal law. And, and so you might be sitting here thinking about lots of exceptions. And there would be. What if one person's a believer and the other's not? What if they're believers but they're in different churches? What if they're both believers and one wants to resolve it this way but the other doesn't? What if they're believers but it's so complicated that nobody seems to have the right understanding to resolve it? What if it's something that so overlaps with the state, even if they want to resolve it internally, they can't, even though it's really a civil matter? My concern, not just with this passage, but with so much of Scripture, is that we can be so quick to jump to exceptions that we gut a passage of any real meaning. And this passage, it means something. Even if you can think of exceptions that we might have to work through, this principle means something means that as believers, we should seek to resolve internally, one-on-one -on -one if possible, bringing in others if needed, bringing in others to mediate, committing to biblical principles, and there might be situations in which all those steps are taken and the outcome is still not what we want. It might not come out in our favor. We might not receive the financial payment we think we deserve. It might not be resolved in the way we want. And this passage says that in some of those situations, it's better just to accept that wrong rather than continue to push or let it spill out in civil litigation. It's kind of hard to hear. Here's an example, though, of a friend I was just talking to that, that kind of from his experience. So he's a, he's a landlord, has, has several properties that he's rented out. And there was one situation where there was a tenant uh, that had to leave the premises. I don't know if he was evicted, he or she was evicted, or if it was just that their contract had run out. Uh, and they had to move out. But they left uh, a lot of unpaid balance you know, from rent that they hadn't paid over time. Now, this landlord could have taken this tenant to court. They would have been within their right to do so. Take him to court, sue to get those damages over time. But... In the context of this relationship, he shared Christ with this person. He had hoped to keep the door open to that. And he was afraid that if he did press for his rights, even though he had a legal right to do so, it might close the door to the gospel with this person that had kind of been cracked open. And so he, cho he chose to be wronged. He chose to set aside some of that money that he could try to regain in order to keep the door open for the gospel. 
It's not even exactly what this passage is talking about because it's, it's not two believers. But it's a way of taking this principle and applying it much broader. The gospel, the care of people, is more important than our own financial gain. Sometimes it's better to be wronged to let that go in order to keep the door to the gospel open. You can also imagine, though, other ways in which it's better to be wronged than to continue to push for our own rights at all cost. When we push for our own rights, especially in the context of a lawsuit that is protracted and long, it is often costly and damaging to the people involved. One Christian attorney, he says that he has counseled dozens of Christians to drop lawsuits against each other. In some 90% of the cases, he has been successful. And he reports that, without exception, those believers have been blessed. Also without exception, those who insisted on resolving their disputes in court became bitter and resentful, whether they won or lost their cases. If they went to court, they always lost spiritually. He's saying in his experience, when people continue to push for these lawsuits, it's filling their heart with bitterness. And that makes sense given the antagonistic nature in which lawsuits often unfold. So Ken Sandy, again, who I mentioned earlier, who started a biblical peacemaking group, and he, he wrote a great book called The Peacemaker. He says it's important to realize that litigation, suing people in this way, often takes a much higher personal toll than most people anticipate. The financial, emotional, and spiritual demands of the adversarial process can be enormous. They can even outweigh the gains made through a favorable judgment. It says that it's often so costly to the person. Financially, yes, but in emotional and so many other ways. Sometimes it's better to be wronged than go through all of that. If Ken Sandy doesn't persuade you, here's a, a better known voice. This is Abraham Lincoln. He says this, or he said this. This is more than 150 years ago then. Discourage litigation. This is when he's speaking to a, a group of other lawyers. Discourage litigation. Persuade your neighbors to compromise whenever you can. Point out to them how, nominal, how the nominal winner is often a real loser in fees, expenses, and waste of time. It's not hard then to see that it can be better to be wrong sometimes than pursue this course of action. This is one of those passages, though, that might not seem as immediately applicable. You may be a college student here thinking, great, next time I'm tempted to sue somebody, <laughs> I'll, I'll remember this. It, it's one of those that doesn't overlap with our experience for each of us as, as maybe as much as other things. You know, if we teach on anger, if we teach on relationships, if we teach on anxiety and worry, those things all of us can be like, oh yeah, I, I, I see that. This is one of those things that maybe not as much, but, but who knows? Who knows what might be in your future? Who knows what scenarios? But there's a principle here that certainly can apply to all of us if we're believers. And that it's better to be willing to be wronged if it means keeping a door open for the gospel. It's better to be willing to be wronged. Rather than pushing for our rights all the time. It might be in the workplace. It might be even within your own family or neighborhood. Something where you could push for something that you're in the right to do. But you know if you do, it's just going to inflame this relationship. It's going to be antagonistic. And it's going to close the door for you to share Christ with them in the future. The, the principle here would be, it's better to be wronged. It's better to be wronged. Let's pray.